overcome. And they can be when you understand uh, what is unconditional about it and what's conditional. Um, And this is some of the things the book's trying to teach us. Does God still care about the Israelites? There's evil Gentile kings ruling us right now. Does God still have a purpose and plan for Israel after the exile? They don't return to their former glory. And this is going to be dealt with in the second half. They continue to be subject to even worse evil kings than when they were in exile. The second temple is going to be desecrated. It's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. Why would God allow Zeus to be worshipped in the sanctuary? Did I I pass that already? Sorry. Uh, Why would God allow persecution and massacre of people who are being observant? What about those that remain in the diaspora? The diaspora means they're outside of the land. The, uh, or di- diaspora is another way of saying it. They're, they're, they never return back to the land after the exile. Is there a purpose and plan for them? And so Daniel tells these stories, these visions. And, and, and with these are the questions that we open the book with. So when we open the book, these are the background. This is what needs to be going through our mind that we're searching for as, as we begin to read what, the, what, what Daniel's trying to tell us, the author's trying to tell us through this. So God reveals himself. How? He's going to reveal himself through rise and fall of Gentile rulers. How many think that would be important to know today? That God is revealing himself through the rise and fall of ungodly leaders around the world. Hmm. Think that might still apply today? He's in control of every rise and fall. The Israelites were defeated, but God was not. How many think it might be good to know that the people of God may be going through persecution, may be going through defeat, but God's not defeated? You know there are more believers being persecuted today than in any time in history? I mean, like, serious persecution. So Daniel's message is what? Yahweh is in control even when it doesn't appear so. He can be trusted by his followers even if faithfulness, believing loyalty, leads to death. Why? This world's temporary. This world's transient. And it's not the end. It's only the beginning for those who trust in him. All right. So the structure of Daniel. What's fascinating to me about this book is that it communicates to us at every level. At every level. Just how the author, and there's so much in scripture that's like this. The authors of scriptures do this over and over and over again. They communicate to us not only through the words they've given us, but the very means by which they put the words together. The structures they use. They're giving us a message just from the structure of how they put it together. All right, um, so there's three ways, which is really cool. It's just one way. To me, it's like, okay, so I sit down and I think I want to give a message. And it's like an artwork, okay? Anybody ever see a piece of artwork where the picture itself means something, but then where everything is on the picture means something? Well, it's the same thing with Scripture. It's not only the words that are being spoken, but it's where everything is. Now, what's fascinating to me is when you look at Daniel, there's at least three different ways we can look at the structure, and it gives us a message. That's that's genius. That's just pure genius to be able to do that. Okay? So the first way is we get two distinct genres. Um, The second way is there's this date formulation. The third way is two languages. And that will lead us into jumping right into the first chapter. All right, so two distinct genres. Scripture is made up of multiple different types of literature. Uh, um, one is one of the genres we're going to look at um, is narrative. Narrative is like, like I said, about forty percent of the Bible is story. That's narrative. 
uh, stories. And, and there's, there's lots, the first six are, are, um, are, are uh, first six chapters of stories. They're in the third person. The narrator is omniscient in these stories. Sometimes the narrator is like right alongside and doesn't know what's going to happen. And, and, and a, a, an author will use these different conventions to be able to communicate something. So we learn from the author that the author, because the author is omniscient, they kind of know what's in the mind of God because God's omniscient. And so that's a, we'll use that device to be able to express how we can see what God wants, that we're seeing from God's perspective. There's court stories, and we talked about that. That's a, that's a type of story that's used in the ancient Near East. We, we reviewed all that last week. But this first genre is narrative. The second genre we're going to see is the second half of the book, and it switches. It switches from narrative to goes to prophetic stories, I mean prophetic literature, and even apocryphal literature. And, and really what's fascinating about Daniel is that you get this mix of prophetic and apocryphal lit- literature in the whole second half. And it'll, it'll make more sense. Now, um, uh, one of the things I'm saying, I'm doing this overview. We covered a lot of this last week, but I know a lot of this material is going to be brand new for some people. You've never heard these terms before, and you've not gone through this before. So I repeat this over and over so that when we get into it, all of a sudden, oh, that thing we've been hearing about, now I'm seeing it, helping us understand it. Because the goal here is not just that you get a little piece of knowledge from today. The goal is that you understand your Bible. That you can open up your Bible and you know what it is you're reading. You can understand it. And that's going to happen as we do this and repeat this and go through these little by little and over and over. Uh, why? Because God gave us. This is, the, this is the word of God. You know, uh, I was you know, sitting in a Bible study. In fact, one of the first Bible teachers that I really heard about Daniel from in depth, his name is Dr. John Lennox. This was in 2008. Pastor Terry and I were both there. This was up in Wheaton University. There for a week-long study in apologetics and evangelism. And first thing in the morning, doc, uh, Dr. Lennox was leading us through a Bible study. And he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, he's from Ireland. And he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, he says, uh, I have a problem with the doctrine of the uh, um, inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God. And you could hear a pin drop in the room because it's like, wait a minute, you know, we're all here. It's like, what do you mean, you know? He goes, oh, it's not that I don't believe it's inspired. He says, I do believe it's inspired. He says, the problem I have is if we actually believe it's inspired, why we're not picking it up and reading it. We actually believe this came from God. And see, that's our goal here. Our goal here is is that we understand these words came from God and to help us to understand it and desire to read it and know it more and apply it in our lives. All right. So we have these two genres, and there's lots of other genres in the Bible as well. But these are some of the genres we're going to look at, and it's broken in these two types um, to be able to give us different types of lessons as we go through. The second way the book is broken down is this date formulation. In other words, it's very unusual because it gives us these pairs of dates. It gives us this pair and another pair and another pair. We'll look at them in just a second. And, and each of those sets is get, breaking apart special information for us. And the very first ones we're going to see tonight. This is going to be in Daniel 1.1 and Daniel 1.21. And literally we're going to go from 605 B.C. all the way up to 539 B.C. And, and we're, we're basically getting all of the scope of the entire book, which is also going to be basically the entire scope of the exile of the kingdom of Judah in the first chapter. So the first chapter is trying to tell us, I'm telling you in the first chapter the overview about everything I'm about to tell you. And it's telling us by giving us these dates, by telling us right, right from the beginning. And then we're going to see a pair of dates, Daniel 2, 1, 
into Daniel 6, 8. It's going to be about the stories. Remember, I talked about the narrative literature. And then we're going to see in Daniel 7, 1 through Daniel 8, 1, the visions that begin. And then there's uh, the visions that are repeated in 9 and 10. And finally, when we get to Daniel 11, there's only one date. It's only one date. Oops. There we go. And what's going on with that last date? That last date is the end of the 70, uh, 70 year. The exile's over. And so um, they're, they're being sent back to the homeland. All right. So that's the second structure. The third structure, in this one we're going to focus more on, is these two languages. The book is actually written, and it's unusual uh, in the Bible, because most of, most of the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, almost all of it's written in Hebrew. And then we have the New Testament, the apostolic writings, that's all written originally in Greek. Except in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are some places that it's actually written in Aramaic. Um, and uh, uh, there's there's some passages in the in the Torah, um, and then we get some so a little bit longer passages in Ezra, but in Daniel, we see that the structure of the book itself is um, is separated around language. In other words, there's a message that the book's trying to teach us based on what language it's written in. Now. One of the reasons I'm bringing it out is because we're not reading it in the original language. We're reading it in English. So we would have no idea that it switched from this language to that language. But if you know it ahead of time and you start reading it as you read it in English, and you go, okay, right here it switches. And then this is what happens. You can see this really, really cool pattern. So we get the preface to the book, the intro, is written in Hebrew. He's writing to the nation of Israel um, as an Israelite about the issues that are going on with Israel. And, and uh, so he's writing in the language of Israel. But then he switches over to Aramaic. And we get chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic. Why? Because what we have, we have these stories about Jews in a Gentile king's court. It's a foreign language. It's about how do I be faithful to God in a foreign setting. How do I, when I am in a pagan culture, live faithful? And it's a message not only to Israel, it's a message to the foreign kings. It's a message to those around as well. And then, when we get over to chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew. Why? Because now it's a message to the Israelites after the exile. They're back in the land, and so it's the language of the land, once again. So, this is this, this switch. And we're going we're gonna to pay attention to this switch as we study through the book, the structure. Um, we're going to drill down on the Aramaic section for a minute because it does something else in the Aramaic. Has anybody ever heard the word chiastic structure or chiasm or a chiism? Chiastic structure. Am I going to say it either way? I saw one hand over here. Ron? Somebody else here? Okay. A few people. All right. This is a literary device. It's still used today. It's used very frequently in ancient literature. Bible uses it a whole bunch. There's this symmetrical pattern. And what happens is, you know, when we, when we, in modern day, most of the time, if I'm going to write something for you, the way I'm going to write, I'm going to put my thesis in the beginning, and then I'm going to make all my arguments and build to my point at the end, and I get the climax. Sometimes I have a little bit of an anti-climax. But my main point is going to be right there in the beginning, and I'm going to hit it again at the end, and bam, had the big punch at the end. Well, in ancient literature, that's, that's not, that, that was a pattern that sometimes followed, but often they followed this chiastic pattern. What is the chiastic pattern? The way this pattern works is uh, you'll have 
your, your, you'll have your first point that you're going to make, and you'll have a counterpoint to that at the very end. So Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are counterpoints to one another. Then you'll have the second point you're going to make. That's going to be Daniel 3. And you'll have a counterpoint to that, Daniel 6. And then you'll have your main point in the middle. Sometimes it'll be two points. Sometimes it'll only be one point. But Daniel 4 and 5 become our thesis. And what they're trying to tell you is the whole theme. Every, Daniel's trying to say the central theme of every time I'm, everything I'm trying to communicate is right here in these two chapters, chapter 4 and 5. If you get this, you'll understand everything else I'm trying to communicate to you. Now let's take a look at how this works. So we got Daniel 2. What do we have? We have a dream about four kingdoms that's replaced with a fifth. When you get down to Daniel 7, guess what the vision is about? Four kingdoms that's replaced with a fifth. This is going to be presented two different ways. But this pattern is there to tell us something. Then we get what? In the middle, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. Daniel's friends face death in a furnace. In Daniel 6, Daniel faces death in a lion's den. So once again, you get these kingdoms, these kingdoms of the world that are leading to the faithful facing death. And how is God going to deliver them uh, uh, through that? What is the book about? We already talked about this exile shock. They've already been. So the book's talking. Just the structure of the book is talking to their situation. Just the way it's put together is speaking to their situation. And what does the central theme get us to? You get this proud Gentile king who is judged, and you get a proud Gentile king is judged. And one repents, the other doesn't. Oops, sorry. It's just skipping there. Um. And so the central theme becomes what? The central theme comes that God controls even the Gentile king. So they're, they're, they didn't understand this. The reason why they didn't understand it in the ancient world, in my kingdom, my king, my, my country is under my God. Your kingdom, your country is under your God. How my God demonstrates his superiority over your God is by my kingdom conquering yours. So if your kingdom comes down and conquers mine, my God's lesser than yours. Well, what do you think the Israelites are thinking now that they've been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar? God, I thought you were the biggest God. I thought you were, I thought you were God. I thought you were greater than all others. How in the world can we be conquered? And what's the central theme? The central theme is even these kings who thought they were conquering by another God are under my control. Even what you thought was being controlled by something else is under my control. And this becomes the central theme. And this will play out tonight as we get into chapter 1. And then we get into chapter uh, 8 where we move past the, um, the Aramaic. And, and that theme that we learn there, God controls the fates of human kings. He gives power and he takes it away. People have to learn how to live in this world no matter who the king is. No matter who is over them, how do we live? All of human history is temporary the kingdom of God will ultimately destroy the kingdoms of, of men. So um, uh, this, Aramaic, this Aramaic language becomes a literary device. And when it's used, there's life outside the land. Why? It's the language outside the land. When they go back in the land, they're using Hebrew. Um, it's, 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 the, it's the language of human rulers that don't fear God for the most part. But God never loses control. All right. So. Um, and then when, when they come back out of exile, it turns back to Hebrew. I won't go through all that. Who's ready to jump into chapter 1? 
All right, so let's jump in the first chapter together here. So introduction, um, that means it's Daniel 1 is literally the introduction to the whole book. Um, and what Daniel 1 does is it gives us characters. It starts to introduce who the characters are we're going to be dealing with in the book. It gives, them, it gives us a setting. And it brings in the big themes that Daniel wants to talk about, that the author wants to talk about as we go through these. I believe the author was Daniel. A lot of times I'll say the author because not, not all scholars do. And so um, uh, it's, it's not a 100% for, for me. I'm, I'm pretty settled on it. But there are many who aren't. So that's why you may hear me say the author and sometimes they say Daniel. I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that, that not everyone acknowledges that. All right. So this first chapter is written in Hebrew. It happens before that chiastic structure we're looking at. So it stands separate. It's meant to be seen as something separate, almost kind of a standalone. And it's a preface to the book. It's an overview to the book. It's introducing everything that's about to come. And, and so how is this, this chapter broken down? So the first couple of verses are a historical introduction to the book. So we're going to get some history. Right away, it's going to give us a little history, why we are where we are, what's the background we're getting into here. And then the next three, ver- the next, uh, yeah, uh, four, uh, five verses, three through seven, um, introduces the main characters, why they are where they are. Why are they in this place? What's going on here? Um, and then we get to ch- verses 8 through 17, and there's a plot. There's a conflict. There's, there's something going on that we're going to get to, and which is resolved in, in, in verses 18 through 21. There's an outcome. And what we're going to notice is this outcome in this very first story. He's immediately teaching us with story. The outcome in this very first story is literally going to be foreshadowing of everything we're going to see in the rest of the book. Okay? So he's going to start right off in his intro with a story that's going to lead us into the other stories that will be coming up. All right. So let's, let's jump into it. We're going, to, we're going to go through the first couple of verses right here. This is the, the historical introduction. So if you have your Bibles and you want to read in your version, you can do that. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. We'll read along together. So it starts off. I'm reading from the ESV here. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Besieged it, you know, um, put a siege around it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So the king was delivered into Nebuchadnezzar. And notice right off up front what he's saying here. There were vessels from the house of God. So we're gonna, this is going to be part of a theme we're going to see in a minute. Vessels from the house of God that Nebuchadnezzar took. He didn't just take the Israelites. He went into the temple and took vessels out of the temple. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Took them back where? To the house of his God. Okay. Uh, did I go past? No, I'm still there. The land of Shinar, the land of Babylon, land of Chaldeans, yes. Um, uh, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay? So this is, this is what's going on here. Now notice, right off the front, what do we have? We have two human kings that are in two different places. We have Jehoiakim in the kingdom of Judah. We have Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, the land of Shinar. So uh, this, this right off, we see this conflict. Two, two human kings. And right behind that, we see another conflict, two gods. We see Yahweh, the God of Israel, and we see Nebuchadnezzar's God. Okay? Right away, this is how 
he's speaking to how they would have seen the conflict between the two kings. The kings are fighting on behalf of their gods. And so right away, it looks one way, but the author's going to tell us it's actually a different how, than how it looks. Look, is there anything more practical in our life than dealing with life that looks one way, but yet we need to trust God because it's not how it looks? That's exactly what's going on right here. And so we have what? We have two realms of battle. There are two realms of battle. There's a physical battle that's going on, and there is a spiritual battle that's going on. And we're just told this right in these first two verses. What's the physical battle? You've got kings who are fighting for their God. And the winning king supposedly demonstrates which God is stronger. So remember, we're t- dealing with, with, with exile shock. Why are, we in, why are we in Babylon? Our God's supposed to be the bigger God, the stronger God. And we, but there's another battle, what the author's trying to tell us. There is a bigger battle going on in the spiritual than what appears to be happening in the physical. The narrator's informing the reader that what appeared to be a victory on behalf of the king of Babylon was actually in accordance with the will of the God of Judah. Did you catch that? This appeared to be Nebuchadnezzar's victory, but in actual fact, it was God who orchestrated it. How do we know? Because he says immediately, uh, in the ver- in, um, um, he, because he says, I'm back up, because he says what? God gave. The Lord gave. And we're going to look at that in just a second. So right up front, in the very first sentences, we're given this, this theme that's going to be central to the whole book. This is going to be central to everything we're about to read. Check this out. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Who? He brought what? He brought, Jehoiak- uh, he brought uh, uh, people from Israel. And he brought vessels from the house of God. Where did he take them? To the house of his God. And he put them in his treasury of his God. It appears he won, but right away, the author is taking any thought that you think Nebuchadnezzar and his God is bigger, he takes it right out because he starts off with, why did he do it? How was he able to do it? Because Yahweh did it. Yahweh did it. The Lord gave. And that's how it starts. So, What's the historical setting that's going on here? Why would God do that? And these are some of the things we're going to wrestle with. So Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon somewhere around 605 B.C., went to 562 B.C., and he's literally considered one of the greatest kings in the ancient times. And that's actually going to come up when we deal with his dream um, uh, in uh, chapter 2. We'll, we'll see this uh, actually be brought back in. So... Uh, this is this is the first character we, we, we come one of the first characters we come up against. This Nebuchadnezzar king, he's a, one of the literally considered one of the greatest kings in the entire ancient world. Now, a few years before this, one of the greatest kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, I want to say southern kingdom. I want to make sure we're all on. Uh, how many have heard uh, the kingdom of Israel? Okay, Israel went through two periods of time. Uh, once it became a nation, actually went through three periods of time. Um, it, be, it, it went in under the time of the judges, became a nation under the time of judges, and then it went into what's called the unified kingdom. That's when Saul became king, David was king, Solomon was king, and you had one whole kingdom at that point. After Solomon, the kingdom was split in half. 
There was a civil war. It was split in half of sorts. And you had the northern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Israel. And you had the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah. Now, in 722 B.C., so over 100 years before this time, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that were in the northern kingdom, were already carried off by the Assyrians. It no longer existed as a kingdom. So the only kingdom that was left at this point was the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah had a series of kings. They were all descendants of David. Um, the proper ones were all the descendants of David. And, uh, and a few of them, about a half a dozen of them, were good kings. And uh, two of them, two or three of them, were really good kings. And Josiah was one of those really good kings. In fact, he was the last good king in the southern kingdom. And so... He, but he dies this untimely death, guess where? On the plains of Megiddo. Now, we might not recognize Megiddo. Anybody ever heard the term Armageddon? It's related to the plain of Megiddo. Okay? And this is where Josiah, the last good king, dies. Now, why did he die? He died because without inquiring of the Lord, he makes the error of not inquiring of the Lord and decides to go out and oppose Pharaoh Necho. Now, there's a lot. Of, see, one of the things, and this is what I like about the Bible, is that the Bible is talks about real individuals and real people, and gives us real stories, and it's got it's got uh, um, all kinds of things that are going on in the world, just like things going on in the world today. It's dealing with real situations, and there was this battle going on between Pharaoh Necho down in Egypt. To the south, below Judah, and up north, there was another king uh, uh, up in Assyria that was that that these two great nations were battling one another. Well, guess where Israel was, right in the middle. And so, when they wanted to fight, they had to go through that land. Well, Josiah decided that he didn't want Pharaoh Necho going through his land. Pharaoh Necho tells him, you can go look this up in Kings, you can look it up in Chronicles. Pharaoh Necho tells him, look, the Lord has told me to do this. If you oppose me, you're opposing the Lord. Get out of my way. I'm not going to mess with you. He gets in his way, and he dies. He didn't inquire of the Lord first. This is the background. This is the history of what's going on here. And so, um, so Pharaoh Necho, uh, um, so, so what Pharaoh Necho does is immediately after this, he had, uh, um, uh, Josiah has three sons, three sons. The oldest is Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz becomes king, and he reigned. He was an evil king. In fact, he was so evil, he only reigned for three months. In three months, Pharaoh Necho comes along and says, uh-uh, you're not on the throne. He takes him, he, he, he literally takes him, deposes him, and takes him down to Egypt, and he dies down in Egypt. And what he does is he puts his brother, because he didn't have a son, Jehoahaz didn't have a son, so he puts his brother, the second son of Josiah, on the throne, 608 B.C., Jehoiakim. All right, so Jehoiakim is on the throne reigning as a vassal, a servant king to Pharaoh Necho. And he also did evil. He heavily taxed the people. He squanders the money. He wants to rebuild the, the palace temple, and he's doing all this. And he's using forced labor, and the people are living under uh, uh, the heavy hand of him. And somewhere around 605 B.C., the political power in the world shifts. Pharaoh Necho starts to lose political power, and Nebuchadnezzar comes on as this great king, and he starts a conquering. 
He starts winning. Well, uh, um, Jehoiakim switches his allegiance. He switches his allegiance from being al- aligned with Egypt to being aligned with Babylon. But the problem is, is in the same way people who switch allegiance politically, he's doing it for personal reasons. And so he's not a very good vassal king, and he creates rebellion to Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, he dies, and his son Jehoiachin, now this is an important character, not so much in Daniel, but in very important in the Bible, very important for the Davidic covenant. At 18 years old, he becomes king. And he's the king, and he reigns for three months. So, and then finally, in 597 B.C., so this is several years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes down, and he deposes Jehoiachin, and he takes Jehoiachin, this, this grandson of Josiah, who's the rightful king in the line of David. He takes him up to Babylon and puts him in jail. In the meanwhile, he takes the third son of Josiah, he renames him Zedekiah, and he puts him on the king. So this is Jehoiachin's uncle. It's the third son of Josiah, and he's reigning. So he's not really a king, he's reigning like a king. And he's a puppet ruler of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the historical background. This is what's going on in the background while, uh, um, that, that we get at the beginning of Daniel. All right? Everybody now thoroughly confused with this. You didn't know you are coming to a history lesson, did you? Okay, now, why is that important? Because we're going to read all of these stories. And a lot of these stories are like, well, that's hard to believe. Or, well, that's kind of crazy. Or, that, look, these are happening in real life to real people going through real history just like us. And we look at what? We look at leaders changing and this one getting elected and that one getting elected. And some are doing evil and some are doing good. And God's moving his hand even through people who have evil purposes. He's not causing them to do evil. He moves in spite of them and brings his purpose about. All right. So that's the historical background. Now we're going to get into the, 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 next, the next several verses. So we're going to be introduced some, some characters here. And what's the setting of these characters? Um, we have this whole history that's going on back here. Now we're going to be forced into the story. We're going to put these characters forced into that history and see what's going on between them in the setting that they're in. So we're back in the text. It says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz. So who's, who's the king of, ba- of Babylon? Who's that? Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. All right, very good. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, four youths or, uh, without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another term a way of referring to the Babylonians. It's actually, a, um, it's a kind of, if you will, a, an economic way of referring to them. Um, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. Now, I mean, you've heard of those names before. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Have I heard of those names before? And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Most of us have heard Shadrach. Uh, Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So notice what's going on here. He's taking these, these four youths, these four young people, and immediately he renames them. Now, who is this? This is the person that we're being introduced to. This is Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz, he's the chief eunuch. He is the chief of the court officials. This is like a, someone who's got oversight and some authority that's going on at a royal level. This is a very important person, kind of like chief of staff kind of thing, you know, if you think about a, in a cabinet. And what is his job in this that we're seeing here? He is the overseer of the education of foreign captives. Now, why would that be an important thing to do? Why would you want to educate foreign captives? And this brings us into uh, what this book, uh, it's going to be interesting as we look at this conflict, what, what gives us conflict and what doesn't and why. So this education of foreign captives was what? It was an intense education. It was highly intense for three years. It it incorporate the captives, the foreign captives, that what they were seeking to do was incorporate them into the civil corps, the civil service of Babylon. So we're going to take these foreigners, re-educate them, indoctrinate them, and put them into service to Babylon. They were the spoils of war. They were diplomatic hostages. There were some that once they got them indoctrinated and retrained and and got them to be good citizens of Babylon, they could take them back and put them into their foreign lands, and now they have people on their side in the foreign lands to help them keep the peace, to help them keep power, to help them keep ruling. This was a very well thought out system to be able to, to, to maintain their power. They, what were they doing? They were indoctrinating them. They were most likely teenagers, especially when we know how old Daniel was at the end of the book. They're most likely teenagers. Why? Because they're easier to teach. You can convince them of what they want to teach them. They were physically good-looking. They had physical prowess. This would have been exactly characteristic of the ancient Near East. Um, they were the cream of the crop, socially, intellectually, physically, all the above. They were taking the best of the best, and they're bringing them in, and they're going to indoctrinate them. They're going to they're, they're going to indoctrinate them two ways. They're going to indoctrinate them in the language, which was Akkadian. And they're going to indoctrinate them in the literature. Why the literature? It had their myths, their stories, their history, their religion, all of the background of Babylon. So what we have right up front, we had a battle of two kings. We had a battle of two gods. Now we have a battle of worldviews. If there is anything that we're dealing with in the world today, it's a battle of worldviews. How do we see the world? That's exactly what's going on. They are going to bring them in, and they're going to seek to educate them in a worldview that is pagan through and through, though they come from a biblical worldview. And they're going to give them a specific diet. We're going to deal with the diet in a minute. Now, what I I want us to notice is their goal is to change their worldview, and the conflict's going to be over diet. Now, why would the conflict be over diet, not worldview? Hmm. Hmm. Plot thickens. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I'm going to tell you, we are dealing with the same thing now. I don't know how many people are aware of this. America as a nation, and I can give you the literature, tell you where you can look this up. 
um, uh, the, the, the history on this. But America as a nation, we have about 69% of our nation who make self-proclamation that they're uh, self-identify as a Christian. But only 6% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview. What we are dealing with in culture today, to no small part, it's an epic battle of worldview. What our job is at the church is to bring the worldview of the kingdom of God into the world. We are to be what? In the world, but not of it. Why? We have a different worldview. A different way we see and understand the world. And so the conflict becomes, how do we understand the world around us compared to how does the world around us understand this world? This is starting right in the beginning of the book. It's how it starts out. And see, what God's trying to teach them is that you can be faithful even in a pagan culture because you're bringing something to it. What are you bringing to it? And this is going to go throughout the whole book. So what's the goal of Nebuchadnezzar? What's the goal of Ashpenaz here? He wants to prepare these young men to serve in the Babylonian palace, to serve in a royal Babylonian court. Now I want us to see, that's his goal. Okay, what I'm going to do is give us a little hint right here of how God works. Here is this moment they think is the lowest moment in the world. Here is the greatest king in the world. And here he brings these young people, what influence can young people have, quote unquote, into a royal court, and it looks like they're the losers, and he is strategically putting faithful servants of God right in the center of the most powerful court in the world. Do you think that was a loss? Do you think God might not have a plan through that? Fascinating. Fascinating. The moment you thought everything was lost was the moment God was revealing what he's trying to do. All right. So we get these four guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And they all have what's called theophoric names. Theophoric, what is theophoric? Theo, God. For light, God revealing names. These names that reveal God in some way. So every one of these names reveal God. And they're given new names. Um, why? Because they're given. Because your name is tied to your identity. This is a battle of identities. With whom do you identify? They they want them to have good Babylonian identities. And so um, the, I'm quoting now. This is out of the um, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Um, there's some debate on what the full name of the of the um, uh, of the Babylonian names mean, um, but I, this is a, this is kind of generally what's going on here, and we can see this. We have Hananiah, which in, uh, is a Hebrew name that means Yahweh is gracious, the Lord is gracious. That I A H on the end is a, is a reference to Yahweh. So Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, um, um, uh, and was, he was his name was changed to Shadrach. The command of Aku, it's related to the Babylonian god Aku, this a Sumerian moon god. So notice this, he has a theophoric name that refers to God, and he's given a Babylonian name referring to a Babylonian god. We get to Mishael, means what? Who is what God is? This is most likely the meaning of it. Who is what God is? 
El on the end is the, is the Hebrew for God. Is it, am I not there? Thank you. Um, and he's changed to Meshach, who is what a coup is. So once again, it's this, it's this taking his name and re, um, redoing it so it references a Babylonian God. Once again, it, it makes it appear like the Babylonian God is greater than Yahweh. And God's going to use every one of them to show how great he is. It doesn't matter what the world calls us. It matters our faithfulness to him. It doesn't matter what label or identity the world tries to put on us. It matters our believing loyalty to follow him right where he puts us. You get Azariah, the Lord has helped. He's changed his name to Abednego, the servant of Nabu, the Babylonian god of wisdom. Also Daniel. Now it's interesting, Daniel's the only one throughout the book that we mostly hear his Hebrew name. And it, it means um, uh, my judge is God. Dan is judge, E, my judge, and L on the end. God was changed to Belteshazzar, Bel protects the chief Babylonian god. So notice all throughout this, the naming, everything that we're seeing is this setup from these two worldviews and this conflict between these two worldviews and this seeking to indoctrinate. And what's the setting that's going on here? Um, the setting is some of the temple vessels of Yahweh are now in the Babylonian temple. Remember? He took the vessels from the temple and he put them into the temple of his God. But now we also have some human vessels who are now in a Babylonian court. So we have vessels from the temple. We have human vessels taken out of the temple of God, taken out of the court of Israel to the court of Babylon. They think they went, yeah. I don't know if he would have killed them. Um, it depends on the level of the rebellion. Um, they probably could have been given more menial or uh, forced labor tasks if they, didn't, if they chose not to participate and not to do this. Prophet Jeremiah um, uh, told them, I believe Ezekiel as well, said, look, God's going to do this. Go settle in and make yourself prosperous there because this is God doing. Told them ahead of time. And so if you get those who are faithful, who are listening to the prophets, they're going to embrace the new setting no matter how hard it is. So it's Romans 12.1. My life's a living sacrifice for the Lord. So my circumstances I'm going to sacrifice and embrace as a sacrifice for him. And, and that's kind of way I see what's going on here. You know, enjoying, no, Jesus didn't want the cross, but nonetheless said, not my will, but your will be done. And that's kind of what's happening here. This, does that make sense? What is what? Vessels? Okay, so the temple vessels would have been like the, uh, the, the, the menorah, the, all of the instruments and implements that were, that were in the temple that would have been holy and sacred that would be used in the rituals going on in the temple um, or been used to represent uh, uh, God in the temple, taking those. There were cups. We're going to find some of these vessels later. These cups particularly that held sacred, um, sacred wine, um, uh, anything the priests would have used to carry out the, the, the uh, ritual practices in the temple in, in Israel. They took those. They're all made, most of them are made of gold. And they took them up. They're very valuable. And we took them up and they put them in the house of their God and said, hey, this cup that was used for sacred wine in the temple, now we got it in our God, our God's temple, saying that sacred cup is now submitted to our God as sacred here. In other words, our God's bigger. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? 
Yeah, great question. All right, so now we're going to get down to Daniel chapter uh, 1, verse 8. And we're going to verse 8, and we're going to jump into the plot. What's going on here? The plot thickens. So what's the whole plot? Let's look at verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, a few things we want to notice here as we're jumping in. What have we got? Remember, one of the things is they're going to indoctrinate them in all these lessons, and they got special diets that the king, the king's diet from his table for all these captives in their training, they're going to eat this diet. And this is what they have, the meat from his table, the wine. And Daniel's like, I don't want to defile myself with this and, 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 and his three friends. I don't want to defile myself with this meat or with this wine. And so he goes to Ashpenaz and says, listen, I don't, I don't want to defile myself with this. Um, and so he's making what? He makes a deliberate decision that's what? Based in deep personal conviction. I find it fascinating, his decision's about the food. His decision is not about what he's learning. I find that fascinating. Yes? Um, so we're going to get into that very next thing right here. Why? Why did he make that decision? Why the food? Um, so there are multiple theories. The text does not clearly tell us why. The text gives us some clues, gives us some hints. I have my personal opinion. I will share my personal opinion. But, um, but I can't say for a fact this is it. Um, there are scholars who will say it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And, and there's, there's actual some real good arguments in the other ones that I just think, I just like the, my, the one I think I like the best. I think fits, fits the best with, and we'll see why I think that as well. So um, why? But here's the important thing, and this is what the text does tell us. He's abstaining from something that is incompatible with God. That's what's going on. There is something about this food that is incompatible with his walk with the Lord. And he says, this is a line. I can't cross this line. That's the important thing. That's the thing we need to take from it. Now, again, there are several possibilities. I'm not going to go into all of them. I will give my personal one. I think there's a key here. The key is it's very specific that it's meat and wine. And it's also very specific that it's defiling. And I'm going, I go along the line with the theory that you just brought up. There's multiple theories, but I go along the line with the theory you just brought up. That, that, that um, uh, in the ancient world, it was a regular practice to offer meat and wine uh, when you were doing offerings to your God. You would offer that meat, and then they would use that meat. That would be meat that you would serve. And so um, it's actually, this actual prohibition carries all the way through the scriptures all the way on up into Acts 15 and even Acts 20, 21, and 22. We see this as a prohibition even to the Gentiles, um, that you are not to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. Now, Paul ends up making the argument, the reason why you do it is not because we believe that the idol is anything, but because we don't want to defile the conscience of the person who offered it. We don't want that person thinking we think their God is anything. And so if someone comes along and says, hey, I sacrificed this to Bell, uh, and I want you to share with it, you say, never mind, because I don't want you, I don't want to exalt Bell in your mind. Um, and so um, some, this, is, this is what I think it is, and I think it's likely uh, that, that, that it was dedicated to pagan idols. It was a regular practice. 
it also foreshadows conflict that's going to come up in, in chapter 6. Remember I told you, this thing talks about things that are going on. In chapter 6, we're going to see the defiling of the temple vessels. And this is going to be conflict that's going to be coming up. So it foreshadows this. Why? Because these vessels are going to be used in, in pagan ceremonies in chapter 6. Um, and so we're going to have this same kind of conflict that's going on then. So... Um, so what, they, what does he say? They, well, we'll see how he wants to respond to this. But whatever, whatever it is, there's something clearly that's going on. And I like this quote here. The greater issue theologically is that of divine nurture versus human nurture. It's divine nurture versus human nurture. On whom or what will the Hebrews rely for sustenance in their captivity? This is what's going on. Am I going to rely... On God and his ability to sustain me, or am I going to forsake um, uh, trust in him to rely on what man provides? When there is a line that I have to cross to do that, what am I going to rely on? And that's what's going on here. They Notice they didn't draw the line at learning all the worldview stuff. Hmm. What protected their minds from learning all that stuff? I would submit to you what protected their minds was this conviction right here. This conviction to not draw the line when there was a clear line is what kept them when they learned what they had to learn to be in the courts. To be successful members of the world, to be in the world but not of it. This conviction to find that place where I am not going to defile myself, yet I'm not going to, but I want to participate as best I can in what's around me. All right, so what's the key? Here's the thing. It's not about a diet plan that sustains them. It's not what they're eating that sustains them. It's where is the source of your life. It's where is your sustenance found. What sustains you? Are you being sustained? Let me, I'll tell you what it reminded me of right here. This is, it took me immediately to this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Anybody remember this scene after he was baptized in the Gospels? After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I like how the Bible tries to be obvious. <laughs> how many of us, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, we might be hungry? How many of us fasting since lunchtime right now are hungry? <laughs> you know, um, and the tempter came and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread." Hmm. Now it wouldn't be a temptation if he couldn't do it. Hmm. Imagine you had the ability to take stones and turn them into a loaf of bread, and you haven't eaten in forty days and forty nights. Hmm. But he answered, "It is written." Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That absolutely fascinates me. I'm sitting here, I have not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, and God's word is going to sustain me over bread that I eat. That's what's going on with Daniel and his four friends. I'm exiled in a captive land. I'm willing to do everything I need to do to be here. I am not going to draw the line at defiling myself in accordance with the Word of God. This is trying to teach us how to live 
before God in a pagan culture. Jesus is the exact is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Literally the, the what is sustaining the very earth we're stated, sitting on the earth being the moon going around the earth, the earth going around the sun, the galaxies that are that are here down to the atoms moving in your body, what is sustaining all that is the word of God. The universe is being upheld by the word of his power. I like how um, there was a dad who was talking to his son. True story. It's actually happened. Dad was telling this story about how big God was. And um, and he's trying to explain, God's so big. And he keeps using these metaphor after metaphor. Finally, he says to his son, this little boy like this, says to his son, God is so big that if he just blinks, we'll all disappear. And the little boy looks at him and goes, does God know that? <laughs> Don't blink, God. <laughs> actually, that's actually a true story. actually happened. All right, so this is the opening to the book. We're going to get into it some more. We're not done yet. But what we notice here is Daniel and his friends, they don't rebel against learning what they need to learn in order to navigate life in the pagan court. They're going to learn what they need to learn in order to navigate. In fact, they're going to learn it so well, they're going to be the best at it. They're going to be the best at it. What he does do is he maintains his devotion to God in the midst of the pagan court. He refuses to draw the line, and it's going to come up over and over in the book. Refuse to draw the line to his devotion to God in the midst of the pagan court. Why? Why was the food defiling is not really the question. Who is the issue? We're dealing with issues of identity. Ultimately, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar and his God when it's ultimately Yahweh and his God. And how did Daniel and his friends behave in the midst of all this? All right, let's jump in. The resolution of this conflict going on. It says this. This is really interesting. It says, and God gave Daniel favor, as if nothing else we've talked about is interesting. But anyway, this is, um, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, so who was the chief of the eunuchs? Anybody remember? Ashpenaz. Very good. Whoever said that. The chief of the eunuchs said, Daniel, um, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So look, I I hear what you're saying. I hear you don't want to eat this food. I hear you don't like this. But this is what the king told me you got to eat this. And if you don't eat this and something happens to you, it's my neck on the line, not yours. I'm the one who's going to lose his head over this. So I'm not so sure I'm all excited about this. Now, what we need to notice is right away is it said what? Let's look at that verse again. God gave Daniel favor. This is the second time we see God gave. Verse said God gave Nebuchadnezzar and the vessels, right? Now we see God giving again. So this book, this is the second time. It's all about what? About God giving. This is this theme that's going on here. Now, what did God give this time? He gave favor. So He's telling us right away, God is working his plan. He's either going to work it with us or he's going to work it in spite of us, but God's going to work his plan. God gave his favor. Now, this is I like this verse from Proverbs that, that points this out. It's Proverbs 69. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Anybody heard that before? 
Um, here's a, another one. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, we can make all the plans we want all day long. Ultimately, God's still going to bring about his plan. Now, we can. He, uh, this is kind of the point of Esther. We can choose to be a part of it or not. Either way, God's going to bring his salvation. We can be on the side where he used us, or we can be on the side where we opposed him. All right. But this is also a weird verse. It's a weird verse. Why? It says, God gave him favor, but then the, but then the chief says, but I don't want to do it. Where's the favor? Right? When God says, he, God gave favor to Daniel, but then the chief says, yeah, but I'm not so sure I want to do this because this is my head you're talking about, not yours. By God's grace, Daniel can, this is what I want us to understand about God's grace here. God had grace on Daniel. That grace was for him to live his conviction out. If you want to live your conviction, you need to ask for the grace of God to live it. And then you need to find a way to live out God's grace in your life. God's grace doesn't mean you're just going along, he puts grace in your life, and everything, he makes everything just happen okay, hunky-dory, everything's fine. We need God's grace to live it out, but we also need to participate with him with that grace to figure out how he's going to make it work out. That grace was what? That grace is that he would live according to the conviction he had. And the first thing he does when he wants to do it is he comes up against the roadblock. But it tells us he comes up against the roadblock and he tells us God's given him grace. Do you notice that? It tells him God gives him grace when he's at a roadblock. We hear God's grace and we think God's going to, you know, everything just opened up, right? No, he just said you can't do it. God gave grace, you can't do it. We've got to pay attention to these details because that's weird. Or is it? Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice, now who's Daniel talking to here? Get the details. Is he talking to Ashpenaz anymore? Ashpenaz anymore? No. He's talking to somebody under Ashpenaz. He's finding a way to round the situation. He's found another person who might be able to help him with his situation. He didn't give up at the first no to live out his conviction. Test your servants for for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Notice, who's the one that's going to be in trouble if it doesn't work out? Ashpenaz. So he goes to the steward who may not be in trouble if it doesn't work out. He says, look, let's just work this little test here. Let's see if we can. And he puts, what's he doing? He's putting his own faith to the test. He believes God's grace is going to make a way and that he will be able to make his way through this. So the steward, what, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Notice Daniel was willing to put his own faith to the test. He was willing to trust that God would be faithful to sustain them. He was willing to, find, to say, God will do this. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. They passed the test. They passed the test. God's grace made a way. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So this is talking about down down the road, after three years of this, that they've learned all this stuff. Notice we get God gave a third time here. He 
catch that? As for these three youths, God gave learning and wisdom. So once again, we're getting from the details of the story, the theme of the book. God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave. Who is the one in control, no matter how circumstances appear? God. Why? Because he's the one who's continuing to give. And we also get an introduction to dreams and visions here. Why? Because this whole book's going to be talking about dreams and visions. All, we, all it tells us is that Daniel understood dreams and visions right there, one line. Why would it tell us that? Because we're going to see lots of dreams and visions and weird stuff happening. So it's telling us right from the beginning. It's foreshadowing what's coming in the rest of the book. Now, Daniel and his friends had to cooperate with God. And because they cooperated with God, God was able to give things to them. Daniel and his friends had to cooperate with God, but because God, they cooperated with God, God was able to give them wisdom. God was able to give them learning. God was able to give them understanding of visions and understanding of dreams. They cooperated. They lived faithful to God. God's grace was poured out on them. This was a, a working together. I, look at, I like these verses from, from um, the New Testament, from Paul's writings. Paul writes this in Colossians. He says, For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he perfect powerfully works within me so who is it is it paul struggling and toiling or is it god working within him the answer is yes everybody yes it's both paul struggling and toiling and god working in him it's not an either or here's another one therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's telling to what? Paul's saying, work out your salvation. Do it with fear. Do it with trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which one is it? Is it, is it you and I working it out, or is it God willing his, to do his good pleasure in it? The answer is yes. How about this one? We're all familiar with this one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are we to walk in good works? Yes. How? By his grace and by his faith that he gives us. You see, it's not an either or. And this is what's going on with Daniel. What is it that we're struggling with in our lives? What is it that we're facing? What is it that we're wrestling with? Ask God to give you the grace. Ask him for his grace to show you, give you the revelation of what it is that's, that, that is you are substituting in your life for the holiness he wants to put in your life. That's bringing you in that place of struggle, place of wrestling. All right, so the rest of the chapter. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They're tested. They go before Nebuchadnezzar, and they're actually tested. The, the, the day comes three years later, and th there's none found like them. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in uh, that were. Uh, that were in all his kingdom. You know, it's, it's ten times, but it's just a hyperbole. It just means way better. There's no way of measuring ten times. It just means they were amazing. They were amazing. What's it demonstrating? God's grace in enabling them from the effort they struggled and toiled in it. So they were fully educated 
but they were not indoctrinated. That's huge. They were fully educated, but they were not indoctrinated. They knew where to draw the line. They were willing to embrace what would help them cause their own captors to prosper. Love your enemies as yourself. Do good to those who would do harm to you. They were willing to do that, yet they knew where to draw the line, where they would not compromise. I won't defile myself and uh, uh, um, before my God. Notice the tragedy of disobedience in the exile of Judah. The tragedy of the disobedience that led to the exile of Judah. We also see the willingness to embrace their circumstances in submission to God. They're in the midst of tragedy. They're in the midst of exile. And they're willing to embrace their circumstances in submission to God. There's another, one of my favorite stories is the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Right? Same thing. You know, it says what? This is, Jacob was, he was, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers. Uh, they were going to kill him, but instead of killing him, they sell him to his cousins. His cousins take him down, exile him into, um, into, uh, 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 Egypt, and he sold as a slave in the house of Potiphar, and the scripture says, and the Lord was with him. How many of us sold into exile, never going to see our family again, sold as a slave in a foreign land, and we're thinking, yeah, Yahweh's with me, man. Woo! What does he do? He embraces his circumstances. He serves his captor with all of his heart. He's raised up to the highest spot. And then he's put in jail for something he didn't do for fact, for not doing the very thing that that, uh, uh, um, she was trying to force him to do. He's put in a jail, and the Bible says again, and the Lord is with him. You're just put in jail for not doing the thing, for falsely accused and not doing the thing. That you were tr- that they tried to get you to do, and you going, God, I'm glad this is you're just so with me. I'm really feeling the presence of your spirit. And he embraced his circumstances. He served the warden of the jail and becomes this, the, the all but the lead warden himself. And it, God ends up using him to save the world. The commitment not to violate their conscience before God and to trust their faith puts Daniel and his friends in a unique position to image God in a pagan world. The tragedy coupled with the faithfulness puts them in a unique place that couldn't have been, they could not have been put there any other way in order to image God, to reflect God where he could not have been reflected without all of that. Joseph's brother, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now notice, that date just gives us the whole scope of the book. The whole scope, everything. Why? Because Cyrus was the first one to end the enforced exile. And so... Unless you have not read this, have not seen this before, I want to actually show you this out of the Bible. This is in the book of Ezra. This is the first chapter of Ezra. It starts in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Notice what's going on. The Lord stirring up Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. That is what Daniel is referring to at the end of the first chapter. It starts off in exile, and he's referring to this very moment where this pagan king himself, under the control of Yahweh, returns the people back to Israel, and not only that, gives them his spoils to take with them. We don't know why we're in the circumstances we're in. We don't know why we go through what we go through. But if we faithfully embrace him, he will bring about his good purposes. He's going to bring them about anyway. The only question is, like Mordecai said to Esther, will you be the one through whom God delivers? That's the only question. Not will God deliver. Will you be the one through whom God delivers? That's uh, chapter 1. So let's just take a summary, brief summary of what we looked at here. First chapter of the book, we're just opening up Daniel. And all we did is just get into the beginning. So Daniel 1, it, into, it introduces the whole book. We have these themes. What do we got? We got two kings. We have two gods. But what we really have, what appears to be in the eyes of the flesh, battles in the flesh, what we really have is God gave, God giving. What's he give? He gives Israel to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives favor to Daniel and company. He gives wisdom. He gives skill. He gives spiritual gifts. Why? What's the central theme, the central theological theme? The providential hand of God is behind all the events that happen. Everything we're going to see in this story, the providential hand of God is behind it. The providential hand of God is behind it. So, Here's the questions that's being dealt with. And these are, we're going to close out with this, and hopefully we can maybe discuss a couple of these as, as we close out and what some of your thoughts are. Here's the questions. These are the, the, those who are faithful to God, and they're displaced. They're carried off in exile. They're in a foreign land. These are the questions that they're asking. How is God at work in the middle of this? How is me being taken from my homeland, everything I know, away from my family, and made a captive in a foreign land? How is God at work in that? How in the world is God going to win when, uh, when it looks like he's losing? It's Friday night at 6.30 and Jesus is hanging on the cross. Everything we were hoping for just died right there. Or did it? Why does God allow himself to look bad? Why in the world would Jesus die on the very thing that was used to, cru- to kill the ho- most horrible, lowest criminals on earth? Why would God allow his own vessels to be put in the temple of a pagan king? Why would he allow his faithful people to serve in a pagan palace? Why would God do that? Why would he make himself look bad? How in the world are we going to live in an exile land, away from all of the freedoms we had, away from all of the the blessing we had, away from the law that we had? What's the real relationship between faith and culture? 
where do we draw the line between living in this world but not being of this world? How do we navigate those questions and those struggles? To what extent do we assimilate to the world around us? To what extent do we embrace the world around us? How do we know where that line is? When is it something that is appropriate and when is something that it's not? These are all questions we just confronted in the first chapter of Daniel. These are all questions that were just brought up in the very first beginning. And with that, we'll pray. And uh, after we pray, we'll turn off the camera. So if anybody wants to ask a question or discuss any of this, we can. Father, we bless you. Father, I pray that your word would have its work in us, that we would know that your hand is leading and guiding. You are not wringing your hands, worried about and wondering how you are going to bring about your plans in this world. The question is, are we seeking you to be your vessels right where you've put us? Lord, may we bring all of those questions that we have to you, and may we trust you through them. May we know two things. You are good, and you are sovereign. We can trust your goodness and your sovereignty. Father, may we not be the same after we look in your word than we were before. May we not learn these things for the sake of gaining knowledge for our head, but for the sake of being sanctified in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me know, Sally, when we're turned off so we can uh, chat in here for a couple minutes.